Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice, you haven't visited beenawake.com to subscribe with your email address. What are you waiting for? Let me know in the comments. I am live streaming this to YouTube. If you are, uh, if you are a premium subscriber, I actually sent you the Zoom link. Uh, so, you know, if you're listening to this after the fact, I've done the last two on Sundays. I do often intend to do live streaming on Saturdays. So just going to kind of be a catch it as you come sort of thing. I figure this is one way for people to maybe pop into the show. I throw it out there on Twitter. The YouTube video stays up for a few days at least and then hides itself. Um, Cause why? Yeah. You know, cause I'm lazy and I don't feel like doing a lot of post video editing when I do this. I'm already doing a lot. I had a lot of fun this week. Uh, actually, I, record, I recorded an episode with Jose Galison, which you can get on his Patreon. And then I recorded an episode with James Gentleman and Matt Erickson, Matt Erickson of King Pilled fame or infamy, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, and that was a fantastic conversation as well. And that's available on James's feed, private feed right now. If you go subscribe and give him a few bucks and you can go on to Jose's feed, give him a few bucks if you're interested in hearing my thoughts on Jose's show we spent. A little bit of time talking about me so you can learn a little bit about a little bit more about my background. And then we got into kind of a conversation of like grifting in the broader content creation space. And then it kind of transitioned very interestingly, I feel, into um, a conversation about masculinity. So that was that was a lot of fun. And then, of course, the uh, long awaited, at least um, from my perspective, interaction with Matt Erickson of Kingpilled came together. It was a fantastic talk. We went at about two. We went about two hours all said and done. A lot of really interesting stuff, tons of things to take apart within that episode. You know, maybe we'll do like a little bit more of a deep dive. Certainly he, he has given me more to think about than most people have for a while, which is what's fun about interacting with him and somebody like popular Liberty, who's going to be one of the, uh, the subject of one of these, one of the pieces this week. So today's episode is entitled, if you didn't see it already, episode 57, um, what did I call it? Vampires, individualism, and black lives. That is what I called this week's episode. And we're going to start out with the vampirism. I don't know. That was kind of like a fun, catchy way for me to just bring something to your attention. If you didn't see it, you know, what's, what's interesting is um, the degree to which one second. Okay. The, the interesting thing for me, at least, is the degree to which anybody is, uh, sorry, I saw somebody try to get in. Okay. The degree to which um, that I find in the, this particularly interesting, it's, um, I want to, I'd like to start here. And starting here means discussing the degree to which is, is really asking this question, how plugged in, right? How plugged in are you to the cable news cycle? I'd have to guess that depending on your age, the degree to which you are plugged into the news cycle lessens or decreases, right? Older people are going to be more likely to listen to somewhere like CNN or Fox News. 
and then younger people are more likely to be, uh, you know, not have a cable plan altogether. Like I don't have cable. I have like HBO through my internet. I have a Netflix password that I've used for years from one of my parents. I have prime, I have Hulu, uh, you know, so that's kind of how I think a lot of us get our, um, uh, get, get our entertainment. And really for news, it's, it's Twitter for me, right? It's kind of going through Twitter and going through different things. But I used to be somebody who was very plugged into the cable news cycle and the way that the cable news outlets actually present um, the way cable news out outlets present information to you. And one of the ways that CNN does that is through these what they call town halls. Right. And it's about as close to a town hall as their presidential debates are debates in that these are entirely scripted events designed for disseminating propaganda. They are not an open or honest more importantly, an honest exchange of ideas, right? And the first thing that I wanted to bring up just when I kind of watched it, because I saw it from the breaking 911 um, uh, uh, Twitter feed. Uh, that, was, that was really where I witnessed it, was uh, you know, kind of seeing these clips, because I guess Joe Biden had a town hall this week you know, to kind of talk about a lot of stuff. And Don Lemon got to play the role that normally it's Anderson Cooper. This time it was Don, Don Lemon who got to come out and just be like, okay, well, here is the best opinion you can possibly have. Here is the right opinion you are supposed to have. And here's the president kind of telling you what it is to be. Now, I've been, if you've been paying attention, you know that I like to call Joe Biden the clip show president. And I do that to draw an analogy to the clip shows of like the 90s and early aughts, the early 2000s. And so basically, you know, you'd have this network show that has to get 26 episodes in a year and you kind of run out of material after a few seasons. And so, you know, they have this form of the clip show. And a clip show is usually a retrospective with a theme, right? So it could be like the funniest moments or the craziest things they've done. And it's usually like put in a setting where the characters are kind of all reminiscing about the past. And then they go, hmm. And then it's just a clip from the prior show, right? And so that's, that's a clip show. I really do think that describes very well the type of president that Joe Biden is. There's a lot of other things you can say too, but I think that's a good starting point. In what I noticed most of all, in uh, when I when I when I know what what I notice most of all, when I look at something like this, whenever I see Joe Biden on TV on a screen or even talking, right, is the degree to which he's just old. <laughs> like I, I get that might come off as mean or rude, but like he's just old. There's this you know there's this one in particular, one of the first ones, um. Uh, one of the first clips that we're going to play here off of Twitter, he's just kind of like shifting back and forth, like, you know, like a 79 year old man. And yet he's supposed to be the leader of this country. He's supposed to be the one pulling the strings, making things happen. I don't, I don't believe that's the case. Joe Biden is, uh, you know, an empty suit that people get to put their ideas into. And that goes, whether you're somebody actually pulling the strings or whether you're an audience member, right. You, you tend to put what you want. If you have somebody, like Obama was really good at this too, right? Because Obama was kind of this nebulous figure in that he didn't spend a lot of time on the national stage as it related to politics. So people got to put on him a lot of the positive hopes and dreams and visions that they had of the world. And this is done by design through, through a presidential campaign. So we're just, I just wanted to play a couple of these clips because I know for some of my listeners and, and frankly for myself too, because like I said, I'm not, I don't really have cable news in my day-to-day life. I'm frankly better for it, I feel. And it's important that we remember that this is going out to millions of people. And while it is the case 
that fewer and fewer people believe these types of things. The ones who still do are the ones who are going to be the most zealot, uh, are going to have the most zealotry as it relates to disseminating the types of ideas that you get in a town hall from CNN. So let's listen to this first clip, which is very but interesting. Folks, um, the rest of the world's wondering about us. Those of you who travel abroad, not a joke, not a joke. You asked, you know, when I went to this G7, all the major democracies, I walked in and I know a lot of them because of my role in the past. And they walk in and I said, America's back. Oops. And they walk in and I said, America's back. And they go, I'm serious. Heads of state. I give you my word as a Biden. said, are you really back? I mean, how can I? we, we, We believe you, Joe. But will the country ever get it together? I talked to Xi, Xi Jinping in China, who I know well. We don't agree on a lot of things. He's a bright and really tough guy. He truly believes that the... But, folks, the, um, the, the rest the, the of the world is wondering about us. Talking point has been Those of you who travel abroad. Oops. The talking point has been in the past that the 21st century is going to belong to China. And like, what's interesting is the degree to which Biden sounds this call for almost for China, right? I don't know. This is kind of this weird thing that he does. Like a lot of weird things that he does. But th- I, th- I like juxtaposing this clip in before we play the next clip, um, which is like this weird, which is this weird thing that we're seeing. Like this is, the, remember this, you know, we said this a lot after Donald Trump was elected, right? And Biden, Joe Biden's supposed to be our return to normalcy because he is the, you know, correct. He is the correct, uh, um, <laughs> he is the correct kind of president in the, in, in the name of Washington, D.C., the CIA, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Amen. Right. Like that's this is the guy who's supposed to be the right kind of president with the right kind of attitude and the right kind of discipline and the right kind of temperament. And moreover, the right kind of messaging, because we couldn't possibly deal with a president like Donald Trump, who was saying all these awful, awful, awful things. So the question is, we believe you, Joe, but will the country ever get it together? Will the United States ever get it together? And then the president, the leader of the United States, also had this to say. And do, though, what they can do is try to change the narrative and say, well, why wasn't Nancy Pelosi prepared? Why weren't the Democrats prepared? Well, for, no, they for can that say that and you can make honest judgments about it. I have. Look, I sometimes get myself in trouble for what I'm about to say. Not that I ever get in trouble. <laughs> As you've heard me say before, no one ever doubts I mean what I say. The problem is I sometimes say all that I mean. <laughs> and, uh, but all kidding aside, I have faith in the American people. I really do to ultimately get to the right place. And by the way, many times Republicans are in the right place. I don't mean that the Republicans only the Democratic point of view. But some of the stuff, I mean, QAnon, the idea that the Democrats or the Biden is hiding people and sucking the blood of children and do- no i'm serious that's now you may not like me and that's your right look it's a simple thing you, you can walk out and say i just don't like the way that guy wears his tie i'm voting against him you have a right to do that you have a right to do that but the kinds of things that are being said of late i think you're beginning to see some of the and both and by Democrats as well, sort of the venom get sort of sort of leak out of a lot of it. We got to get beyond this. Mm. What do you say to your grandchildren or your children about what's happening? Do you ever remember a time like this before in the entire history? 
whether you're a Democrat or Republican. This is not who we are. This is not who we are as Americans, is what Joe Biden is trying to say in this moment. But of course, when he was like talking to a reporter pretty soon after that, this is on the CBS's TikTok, it looks like, or maybe this is Instagram. The police. Have are that. there people who, in the Democratic Party, are there people in the Republican Party who think we're sucking the blood out of kids? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Are there people in the Democratic Party who want us to support the president? We're not defunding the police. We have are there are there people in the Republican Party who think we're sucking the blood out of kids? So he's saying, Joe Biden is saying there that we're not going to defund the police, which is obvious. Uh, from his position. And then the reporter says, but are there people in your party who want to? And he immediately jumps to, are there Republicans who say that we like to suck the blood of kids? Did, did anybody else? It, it's like, well, of course, I don't think somebody like Joe Biden knows that like a show like South Park exists. Right. Cause like if you, if you're wondering if you have a unique take, just realize that like South Park got there 10 years ago and probably the Simpsons got there 15 years ago when it comes to these types of things. Cause I remember very well, <laughs> I remember very well that there was a, um, that there was a video. Uh, what was the episode? I think I looked it up and it was with Chris Reeves. So it was actually a question of the, um, it was actually a, a question of uh, stem cells in that instance with, with children. That was why that, that was what the initial episode was, but then it like, you know, comes out and throughout the, the episode that it's also, you know, like uh, politicians are sucking the blood of kids. What's interesting about this is the slow roll of the scapegoating, right? And I wrote about scapegoat. I wrote about what the scapegoating is going to look like. We've already, we're already starting to see people be um, sentenced to prison in the case of the protests on January 6th. Um, I guess if I'm live streaming this on YouTube, I should be careful about how I refer to these things, but I don't really care. Um, so the reason why I wanted to share those, A, was just kind of just to put it in your face that these types of things are being said on a, at a very large scale, right? These are on major cable news outlets. They are, you know, disseminated subsequently on Twitter. Um, and then most importantly, they're disseminated on Twitter. But most importantly, this is what like the average person is supposed to take as, as good rhetoric, right? Like, so immediately somebody, it, it, this is the part that scares me the most. And other people have said this, and I've, I think I've said this elsewhere too, which is that, if you were trying, because how did that start, right? Well, the first clip that I played with Joe Biden was kind of discussing our, his, what, what he perceives as our presence, the United States presence on the world, scale, world stage, and how that was hurt by the image and likeness of Donald Trump being the president. Huh? Well, here's the thing. If Donald, what happens now? Well, so now we've immediately jumped into QAnon. We've seen still an escalation of the type of rhetoric at the highest levels of American government. The escalation of rhetoric at the highest levels of American government against ostensibly 50% of the population. Now, what you see right here is saying, well, the extreme people are the ones who think that uh, are the ones who think that the Democrats are sucking the blood of babies, right? And that's supposed to be as extreme as the people who want to defund the police department in the Democratic establishment or 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 up and coming in the Democratic Party. <laughs> By the way, there's there's no real efforts to defund the police, right? All you're going to what you're really going to do is just redirect the assets or remove the incentive for the police to basically go after what should be 
crimes. And we see this in a place like um, we, we see this in a place like California, where if you shoplift less than a thousand dollars, you are completely protected from prosecution. So there's literally nothing for sh- for shop owners and for uh, employees to do in these situations. And I've seen pictures and videos of people just like walking out with a ton of uh, with a ton of jeans or what have you from like a Walgreens because they're not going to get prosecuted. So that's the effect of, of abolishing the police. If the people were serious about abolishing police, you'd wonder how you would replace it. Moreover, it wouldn't be done in, um, in the manner in which it's being talked about because what this is allowing for, what, what this allows for is for the top to, cl- to, to come down on the bottom, right? And this is, I, I believe, if memory serves, this is Francis, Francis Fox Piven, the Fox Piven strategy where you it's a bottom up, middle out, top down, or bottom up, top down, middle out. So you have the bottom where you have, you know, you have the rabble in the bottom and you um, agitate them and you cause them to riot. And then the top gets to, gets to clamp down. And all the different measures, these little measures that we see in different parts of the country, when whether it manifests itself as an autonomous zone or like I was saying, uh, basically getting rid of the idea of petty theft getting rid of the idea of cash bond, which has a lot of issues, by the way, but, like, but this is to the point. The issue is never what you do to protect the innocent, right? It's what you do to punish the guilty. What do you do in the name of protecting the innocent? It's what, it's what we're doing instead now is it's we're, we're protecting the guilty. And this serves, this, serves the, this serves the case of tyranny, the broader idea of a tyrannical government or this concept of anarcho-tyranny that uh, I probably should write about because it's a good idea that that de- deserves a little more thought on the pages of beenawake.com. But I just wanted to share those. Like it's I, I I like watching Biden for a strange reason, maybe the same reason that people like watching a car crash. One of the games that I've been playing in my mind right now, and certainly that a lot of other people have been asking about is uh certainly that a lot of the other people have been asking about is like, when do things change? I think the answer is obviously right after or right before the midterm elections, kind of depending on how his favorability ratings go. It doesn't appear to me that he can last. Ooh, it doesn't appear to me that, that somebody like Biden can really last another four years uh, or another two years, three years as president, but we'll see what happens. You know, this is, <laughs> we are all in uncharted waters. And that was something else he said in that clip too. And this was a point that I wanted to make before we move on to the pieces that I wrote this week was he makes, he makes mention of that and he goes, and this is a, you know, this is a rhetoric tactic. This is a tactic of speech writing of influence to try and get people on your side. He, he like looks out to the crowd and they, they do, they show shots in the crowd and you can find those videos linked in the show notes for today's page uh, for, for today's episode. But he goes like, you know, what do you say to your grandchildren? Because that's what he, you know, because he's old. So that's what he's going to think of first. What do you say to your children? <laughs> James in the chat, anarcho tyranny doesn't exist because I've never heard a poli sci professor talk about it. Well, again, in the name of the CIA, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the, and the, and the federal government, amen. I'm sorry for making that sort of categorical error in my reasoning. Um, I'll have to work on that because that's kind of funny, but it doesn't really do anything until it sounds better. Um, have you ever seen a time like this? Well, no, I don't. Because I think one of the things that we're witnessing, and you'll hear me talk about this in the longer conversation with Kingpilled, Matt Erickson, and um, <laughs> uh, Matt Erickson and, and James Gentleman, is that I do think that some of what we are seeing, witnessing, are simply diminishing returns. 
right? They, it is just diminishing returns of an empire, of the American empire, whose order has lasted, you know, basically the financial order started about 100, 110 years ago, 120 years ago, depending on where you want to start the clock. And the, uh, the crystallization, the formalization of the empire happened in the aftermath of World War II with, some, with things like the Bretton Woods, Woods Agreement. And then certainly the fall of the Soviet Union kind of solidified that. And we're just witnessing the diminishing returns of that today. Right. Part of the reason why you've never witnessed a time period in American history like this is because there hasn't been a time period in American history like this, where you have the president of the United States, instead of ostensibly trying to unite the country the way Obama did, you know, at least in rhetoric. And certainly Trump was, you know, the first person to try doing more of the divisional thing. Again, you know, we're supposed to we're supposed to believe that that, that most Republicans think that Democrats suck the blood of children when that's obviously it's 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 kind of a joke. Right. And if somebody seriously believes that, then that then, you know, that that's an opinion that you can discount. Right. That's somebody that you shouldn't be paying attention to. Hell, that's probably a boomer who's been taken over by the algorithm of Facebook. Because that's that's like a real thing that we have to contend with in our day. But I want to go through uh, the articles that I wrote this week. I'm kind of uh, kind of focused a little bit on Cuba again. Um, Because it's just, you know, it's something that I care about. And moreover, it's something that I think matters for a broader scale. And it gave me this fantastic headline that I wrote where black lives don't matter with an asterisk. And of course, black lives don't matter to communists. So here's why. Last week on the island of Cuba, the world watched as the people who have suffered under communism for 70 years took to the street. And what did Twitter say? What did the people at the top of our society who supposedly know so much about the world, what did they say? They said that, that the protests are taking place across Cuba as the country faces shortages of COVID-19 vaccines and the basic necessities. It's all about the vaccines. That's what they need. That's what the people of Cuba need. Of course, you know, and let me share this screen again. Of course, if you were going to listen to the people in Cuba, what they were saying, and of course, I'd highly recommend that everybody follow Yoni Sanchez. She is a journalist who operates out of Cuba and actually puts real things out there. This is what they were actually saying. This is what the people were actually talking about. So that was like a couple of weeks ago in Havana. And they were, they were of course, chanting Libertad, which is Spanish for liberty, freedom. That's what the people were calling for. So here's what's wrong with me. Here's why I write an article that says Black Lives Don't Matter. There are moments where even I am shocked by the depravity of corporate journalists and social media platforms in the United States. I spend a lot of my time, what's what we just kind of did for the last few minutes, highlighting the methods and tactics of social control that they implement. And even I was shocked at the disconnect between what I was viewing through Cuban friends and family via Instagram story and the headlines from outlets like Reuters, like Reuters, Washington Post, New York Times, and so on. Now, what's wrong, I have clinically diagnosed myself with the condition that many suffer from. It is a condition that sets you apart from the greater herd of humanity. And if you're not careful, it will lead you to ruin. This condition is known as having a memory. And I literally mean that. There are, some, there are many of us who have the capacity to remember how the narrative changes in you know, something like the corporate press, how the dominant narrative of social control changes. Because we've been trained to look for the cues at this point. Because these people, right? Like somebody like Biden isn't, the, uh, isn't that smart. Right. And, he's, and not to say that he's an unintelligent person, but he's not as smart as, say, like an Edward Bernays who lived 100 years ago. 
somebody like Edward Bernays, who pioneered the field of propaganda, public relations. And of course, there have been many subsequent people afterwards who have tried to further the ideas. Cialdini comes to mind. And I do believe Cialdini works with, or at least worked with, uh, with, uh, with Kamala Harris's campaign if he doesn't work for, um, if he's not consulting with the Biden administration. And Cialdini wrote the book on influence. So these are tactics. These are, these are methods that you can actually study and learn. The problem is that's going to give you a memory. This is why I say ignorance is bliss. Just recognize the fact that you are ignorant, please, and leave me alone. So let's talk about Black Lives Matter as a corporate lie. Given my opposition to ideas like socialism, communism, and Marxism, I never really fell for the corporate face of the larger Black Lives Matter movement. I'm not a binary thinker, though, so I can understand and agree with the real injustices of the American so-called criminal justice system without falling victim to the leftist dogma that pervaded the summer of 2020. And that's really one of the things that we witnessed in 2020 was the pervasion of was, was the pervasion of, le- of, um, of leftist dogma, specifically being carried by the corporate face of the Black Lives Matter movement. I also then, as a consequence of this, understand the way opportunists, opportunists manipulate and direct the angst of real people to serve their power-hungry ends. You remember last summer, right? People were told to stay home for the good of humanity, yet thousands took to the streets protesting the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department. In response to this, the official narrative can be understood from the following CNN headline, which reads, over 1,000 health professionals sign a letter saying, don't shut down protests using coronavirus concerns as an excuse. This was last year. This wasn't, I mean, so I'm, we're doing this at the end of July. I'm pretty sure this article, you know, and I may as well click it to, to make sure I'm not speaking out of my butt. Yeah, this article was published a little over a year ago, June 5th of 2020 by Mallory Simon. According to these medical professionals, the cause of anti-racism is and was more important than spreading a virus. And moreover, these medical professionals, quoting from the piece, support the protests as vital to the national public health and to the threatened health, specifically of black people in the United States. We medical professionals can show that support by facilitating safest protesting practices without detracting from demonstrators' ability to gather and demand change. This should not be confused with a permissive stance on all gatherings, particularly protests against stay-at-home orders. Those actions not only oppose public health interventions, but are also rooted in white nationalism and run contrary to respect for Black lives. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it fascinating when you really break these things down a year later, how obvious and frankly, in my opinion, disgusting the elevation of the rhetoric is? We support these protests as vital to the national public health conversation and to threatened health, specifically of black people. You can have these protests because they are for a better cause. Now, you can't protest the fact that you can't go to work and that you're not making any money and that you're getting fatter and lazier and more anxious as a result. You can't protest for your basic human rights, but you can go and protest for the benefit of anti-racism and black lives. That was, the, that was the leftist narrative last summer. That was the dogmatic leftist corporate face of what was happening. At the time, therefore, it was more important that people protest against police brutality than stay at home. It's funny as you can't, you couldn't, but, but, but only police brutality against black Americans, right? Couldn't be about police brutality against store owners, a lot of whom are black or Mexican or just immigrants in general. 
because I'm pretty sure if you look at the stats, a lot of small businesses are created by first-generation immigrants. A year later, though, in a country without freedom, there is no denying the fact, the only people who would deny that the Cuban, the Cuban people are without the types of liberties and freedoms that we have in the United States are communists, and you can disregard the opinion of communists if you listen to this show. A year later, in a country without freedom, the argument takes a different tone. From Reuters, Cuban protests risk exacerbating the COVID-19 spike. Quoting from the piece, the gathering of individuals for protests increases the risk of transmission, in particular in cases such as Cuba, where you have active transmission in many areas over the last week and 34,244 new cases reported. That's a, that's a negotiating influence tactic, by the way to use like a very specific number instead of a broad one. So instead of saying over 3,300 new cases reported, you say 34,244. And that like, that helps give gravitas. It makes you, it, it gives the person on the other side of the conversation, the impression that the person writing, the person saying, I am an authority in this manner has given more thought to the subject than you have. So in Cuba, in a poor country like Cuba, we're risking exacerbating a COVID-19 spike, even though they are, and, and of course, they are protesting because they can't get access to COVID-19 supplies if we're to believe the corporate press, if we're to believe the tech giants like Twitter. Well, I mean, maybe something else is going on. Maybe that's what you need to think about. And that's what you need to consider in this kind of situation. And frankly, for me, this, the, 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 best, the, the best possible thing that could have happened did in this instance, which is that the Black Lives Matter organization, the corporate face of the larger, larger Black Lives Matter community, let me go ahead and break down what I mean by that. I understand, this is what I mean when I say I'm not a binary thinker, that most people, their ideological possession is, 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 about, as, uh, is about as easy to pin down as a specific grain of sand amongst the tide. How about let's let's stick with that. I look at mo I do look at the vast majority of people as generally speaking having inclinations and temperaments, and it manifests itself in the political realm. But again, most people are having their strings pulled. They're not necessarily uh, the one. They're not necessarily doing the deep dive of philosophy to understand why they understand the why they believe the things they believe. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, this is just again kind of how people work. That's the that's the point. <laughs> that's the part you need to remember. This is just how people work. So my critique with Black Lives Matter has never been for the mother whose kid was killed by gang violence and who just wants, who just wants there to not be killings and shootings in the street, right? Like I live outside of a city like Chicago and we're a national joke about how many people get shot here. Still relatively safe. safe. Still, if you live in most places, you're not going to have anything go wrong. But for the people who live where the violence occurs, it is constant. Those are not the people who I am taking issue with. I am taking issue with the people at the top, with the elites of the movement, with the corporate face who insist upon Marxist and communist ideology. So Black Lives Matter on their Instagram released the following statement. BLM condemns the U.S. federal government's inhumane treatment of Cubans and it urges it immediately to lift the economic embargo. This cruel and inhumane policy instituted with the explicit intention of destabilizing the country and undermining Cubans' right to choose their own government is at the heart of Cuba's current crisis. Since 1962, the United States has forced pain and suffering on the people of Cuba by cutting off food, medicine, and supplies, costing the tiny island nation an estimated 130 
billion. This is one of the reasons why I am, why I have been beating the drum on this story so much is because of course, isn't it interesting? You know, we have, I have a quote from a little bit below this, because I don't know that I'm going to read the entire quote a little bit below this. I have a quote from Ben Burgess, who has debated people of like Dave Smith on the idea of libertarianism and capitalism and socialism. He's also debated Gene Epstein. He says, he writes, right-wing and anti-communists often want to have it both ways. On the one hand, they deny that the embargo is a significant contributing factor to the hardships in Cuba, arguing that the shortages are almost entirely caused by the flaws in Cuba's system. On the other hand, they insist that it's essential the embargo stay in place. But why? If it really has no major effect on Cuba's economy, how could it be an important tool to pressure the Cuban government to meet U.S. demands? If it really isn't exacerbating the island's economic problems, why not prove that by normalizing trade relations? Libertarians should take note, should be paying attention to the fact that the argument that they are making is the same as that of communists and socialists. This is a smokescreen, right? Which is what they do. I want to take a quick look. I want to get a little bit granular on this. And I want to take particular exception to this sentence right here that I'm highlighting if you're watching on YouTube right now. This cruel and inhumane policy instituted with the explicit intention of destabilizing the country and undermining Cubans' right to choose their own government is at the heart of Cuba's current crisis. These assholes are lying. Cubans do not have the right to choose their government, and they haven't since before Fidel, but certainly after Fidel. See, I don't know. I, 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 we, talk, we talked last week about sterile ideas, and I think this whole thing of like, oh, we need to end the embargoes is such a sterile idea because it bears no fruit. It also has no bearing on the subject matter at hand. It has absolutely no bearing on the subject matter at hand. Why? Because we're dealing with supply chain disruptions in the United States, and we have free trade across the world. Number, that's number one. Number two, we do. We have free trade with other communist regimes, namely China. Tell me how that stopped communism in China. No, communism has only gotten better in China. And better by better, I mean better for the regime as a cons- with a, as a, in, in consequence of having an open trade policy with the United States. How dare you? How dare you dismiss the legitimate concerns of the people in a country where the internet, as far as I know, is still shut down? See, their government knows the people can actually do something so they shut down the they shut down the internet to make sure that the message isn't getting out. There have been demonstrations across the world of the Cuba, the larger Cuban diaspora. Across the world, there have been demonstrations in support of the people in Cuba. But according to the American press, this is only about vaccine COVID nineteen vaccine rollouts. According to the corporate face of Black Lives Matter, this is only the fault of the United States. Libertarians should take notice when their words, when their when their words line up with those of socialists and communists. And frankly, you should really question the validity of those words in the aftermath of that. For a school of thought that is characteristically un, that is characteristically unconcerned with economics, that is to say, you know, socialism broadly speaking, the casual observer might think that these sorts of messaging, that this sort of messaging marks a breakthrough. This is incorrect. 
What organizations like Black Lives Matter are deploying is a careful smokescreen to obfuscate the true reason for the poverty in Cuba. The true reason for poverty in Cuba is communism. No more, no less. The fact that I have seen many libertarians follow this bandwagon is disappointing, but unsurprising, unsurprising given the level of cultural ignorance around the island nation. By the way, just as a general rule, I don't like the idea of economic embargoes either, but I'm not going to carry water for communist regimes in the aftermath of that. Just because I don't think economic embargoes set out to do what they want or to do what the government says it does, does not mean I am going to carry water for communism and socialism. Again, libertarians, take note of this. There are many black lives in Cuba. We do, we Cubans come in all colorations. Those black lives march through the crumbling streets of Havana, asking for basic necessities from a government that refuses to allow them any kind of economic freedom that would increase their standard of living. Instead of addressing the real concerns of black lives in another country who go without what, who go without what we take for granted here in America, they, the corporate face of Black Lives Matter, cry foul at a regime who is led by the candidates they supported. Right? Because BLM supported Joe Biden. Black lives don't actually matter to the organization because they seek power. The same kind of power that Fidel Castro was able to actualize when he conquered the island. Castro promised open elections and gave Cuba tyranny. If the people running the corporate face of BLM ever gained a similar amount of political power, they would bring the same result. Cubans of all colors escaped the regime in Cuba to be free, and they have been met with success. While there are some left-leaning Cuban millennials and Gen Z who do not take my hardline stance against socialism and Marxism, they know full well that the words of the Black Lives Matter organization ring hollow in this regard from people in Espanol, people Chica. This is actually written by a friend of mine. According to Valdez, BLM is wrong. Quote, Cubans aren't chanting end the embargo as they risk their lives to protest on the island. They're protesting and they're screaming libertad. They're asking for freedom. Valdez informs BLM in a video posted to her Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok accounts. People are not hungry because there's an embargo. There's fish and lobsters in hotel for tourists, but no food for the people, Valdez tells people Chica. There's food in supermarkets that you can only purchase from if you have U.S. dollars. And people on the island don't earn U.S. dollars. There are fruits and vegetables that go bad in the countryside because the government doesn't collect it in time. But if a Cuban was to collect it and feed it to their family, they would be imprisoned. This isn't the first time that there have been, you know, a lack of basic access to food and food and uh, basic you know, necessities for life, food and water specifically. This isn't the first time this has happened in Cuba. Hell, this isn't even the first time in the last five years. See, in the last five years, when Obama normalized relations with Cuba, which I begrudgingly supported, I begrudgingly supported it because I do understand that liberalization is better for, for all of us. But in the aftermath of normalizing relations with Cuba, Americans flooded, flooded to the island nation, mostly and a lot of leftist Americans too. And you go to Havana, and that's all. That's the only place you're allowed to visit. And you go to the Hemingway restaurant, and then you go onto the strip where there's the beautiful cars from the 1950s that are in perfect condition. And you take a picture, and you say Cuba is beautiful, and you go home. And you're like, oh, there was all this food. There was all this supplies. Everybody was so full of life. Yeah, it's because all the food went to you. 
This is an established thing. If you go and talk to Cubans, they know this. That the people in the countryside are left without food and basic necessities when there are more tourists than the government can handle. The government controls everything in Cuba. You don't, like, literally every single aspect of it. Cubans can't go fish. It's an island nation. You can probably just take a boat out like 20 feet into the ocean and you can catch enough fish just to feed yourself. If you do that without the permission of the communist government, you're dead. I've seen reports of hundreds of people missing across the island of Cuba. More than likely, they've been killed by their government. There's a secondary point here that I've seen some libertarians make in particular. See, conservatives just like, well, we just need to bomb the place. We just need to bomb the place. And then the progressive socialists say like, well, we just need to stop the embargo. And because the people of Cuba, you know, they, 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 they like their government. They just don't like the fact that America has an embargo against it. Listen, part of the reason why Cuba hasn't revolted is because they can export their malcontents to the United States. Think about that. If, the, if, if, if we weren't so close to an island like Cuba, my, it was very possible that my family never would have been able to escape to a place like America very easily. If you can export all of your political dissidents to another country, it's pretty easy to maintain control, wouldn't you say? Maybe it has nothing to do with the fact that that, 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 that that country actually has an embargo against you. And in fact, there is aid that goes to Cuba from the United States. The embargo is just on certain specific things. If you didn't know, communists lie. For the revolutionary, truth must be sacrificed for the greater good. As a skeptic, I put inquiry before dogma and endeavor to find what is. Everyone wants more for themselves. Everybody does. The leftist, the rightist, the monarchist, and the, democ the democrat. They all want more for themselves. And injustice, and, you know, real injustice creates the conditions ripe for revolution. Living under communism means no regular access to the internet, massive food shortages while tourists stuff their face, imprisonment and death for speaking your mind, poor medical care, crumbling buildings, no job, and no social movement outside of the official party narrative. We are witnessing a truly oppressed people cry out for liberty, and corporate Black Lives Matter blames the United States. They are liars and tyrants in waiting, as their tweet after Castro's death proves. And of course, that tweet reads, Rest in power. The rallying cry of Castro's revolution was patria o muerte, homeland or death. The rallying cry of Cubans, of Cubans today is patria y vida, homeland and life. Choose your side wisely. A little bit more about Cuba, but this is this this actually deals with a little bit. This is going to get move into our next. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's do. Hey, no, we'll do this now. The U.S. Coast Guard helps defend tyranny. The federal government is helping to protect the communist regime in Cuba. This is interesting, considering the Cuban government blames the United States for the recent protests. If such a thing were true, you would think that the government would allow Cuban Americans to bring humanitarian aid to the people of Cuba. Yet we have this story from WSVN down in Florida. A group of protesters took to the water to deliver some much-needed aid and a message to the people of Cuba. Through torrential rain, thunder, and lightning, people at Pelican Bay loaded the small boat with water and supplies, items the group hopes to deliver to the island nation. Water, food, medicine, whatever we can take to Cuba, whatever we can take to help is good. Alejandro, who's one of the organizers, 
I believe doesn't have a boat, but he does. Oh no, sorry. This is a, he doesn't want to, he doesn't have a boat, but he wants to do whatever he can to help. So he was with these people who were going, I just want to go with my heart to support my people right there. He said, Alejandro and others are waiting for the next boat with supplies heading to Cuba from Pelican Bay Harbor Tuesday. We aren't afraid of what can happen. said Lorenzo we will be 12 miles away. Whatever Cuba needs, we will be there. The often forgotten branch of the U S military, the coast guard had this to say in response. As the lead agency protecting our Southeast Maritime border, the Coast Guard, along with our local, state, and federal partners, are monitoring any activity that may indicate increases in unsafe and illegal maritime migration in the Florida Straits, including unpermitted vessel departures from Florida to Cuba. I don't want the United States government being in charge of what happens next in Cuba. Their past meddling in support of the Batista regime was part of the reason Fidel Castro was able to come to power. This is the ultimate irony of U.S. foreign policy in the, during, the, during the Soviet years, the domino theory, which was completely incorrect. The irony is, is that they created the conditions. The U.S. government created the conditions for communism in Cuba by supporting a bad regime. That's how Fidel came to power. There were liberal elements. There were democratic elements fighting against the Batista regime as well. They all were either killed or joined the Communist Party. So let me ask this question. If free Americans and Cuban exiles want to use their own money and their own time and their own ships to bring humanitarian supplies to the people of Cuba, why must they be stopped? Simply, they must be stopped because the United States government is more invested in maintaining the social order established after World War II than, than give freedom to the people who call for it. Their highest priority is the sanctity of the nation state. Even enemy states like Cuba must be protected from interlocutors. Oof, man, did that one twice. Inter interlocutors, which means meddling kids, if you will, disrupting a government power, disrupting a governing power without their permission. So because these people leaving places like Miami, and if you reach out to me in DM, I can send you, uh, if you're interested, you know, places you can send money. This is something you're interested in. Disrupting the government, governing power, and that's through a friend. Friend of a friend of a friend. It's because they're not asking for permission of the US government is why they have to be stopped. Because it's more important to protect an enemy regime of the United States than it is for people to be free. Consider the interventions in the Middle East. Policy is to, the, the Middle East policy is to enact regime change, depose a leader, and engage in nation building, form a government using the exact same borders. Tribal fealty has never been a concern for U.S. foreign policy, so why start now? You know, another point to be made, and libertarians know this point well, is the fact that, you know, in, in the course of our engagements in a place like Iraq, we have fought on the side of Al-Qaeda, on the side of ISIS multiple times when, it, when it's benefited us. Scott Horton, of course, puts this better than anybody else can. It's inevitable that these sorts of things happen. But the important thing is to remember that the U.S. regime is not interested in freedom for people. The U.S. regime is interested in maintaining the sanctity of the nation state. And that's one of the reasons we see in places like Hong Kong, right? In Hong Kong, you're not really supposed to pay attention to the protests there. And of course, you know, it's probably in vain for the people there as much as it pains my heart to say it. But man, the people of Cuba are so close. And we still 
and even and the people are Cuba, and there are Cubans, people who would rather live in Cuba than the United States if it was only free. And, all, and they want to bring humanitarian supplies. But what does the U.S. military say? No, you don't get to do that because we get to decide when humanitarian aid goes to people. We get to decide when, when people get, quote unquote, freedom. And again, it's more important for them to maintain the regime in Cuba than it is for the people's cries to be recognized. Supposedly, Biden's going to implement some more sanctions. But then which one is it? Either they work or they don't. Again, I've been asking, and I don't know, maybe I'll look into it and write about it, and we'll talk about this again next week, but like how easy it would actually be to give Wi-Fi because I've seen people kind of put that idea out there. If anybody knows, let me know. Reach out on Twitter. You know, I talk about the sanctity of the nation state in that, and I went looking for articles, and I found this one from the Atlantic Council. And if you don't know, the Atlantic Council is kind of like one of those government NGOs that if you follow, you can, you can understand what the government's going to do next. This was written on April 9th of 2020. Been around for a bit now. Came pretty, uh, came, came pretty uh, close, came up pretty quickly when I Googled the phrase. And, it's inter- it, and so it's interesting to see that, you know, I've been having this thought about the nation state for like four years or so, right? And I've been writing for the last year. And so I'm kind of starting to bring some of this stuff out now. But I've just had this notion, this sense that the nation state might be ending, right? Like this, this world order that has existed since World War II might be over sooner rather than later. So the pandemic may replace the nation state, but with what? So I just wanted to read a little bit from towards the end of the place, kind of what they say here. So they asked the question in the piece, if not the nation states post-COVID, then what? Before COVID-19, the piece reads, for transnational corporations providing digital services, aside from the challenges of a fragmented internet as highlighted earlier, global data governance increasingly was becoming fragmented. Post-COVID, however, digitization seems to be the future. Physical factories that require humans to be present to operate appear to be the liability during a pandemic. Blah, 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 blah. So these technological and economic trends linked to COVID-19 may be the collective straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back when it comes to the post-World War II international order. Will nation states remain relevant in what comes next? Or will the tension between globalism that, w- that was present before COVID-19 and the real politic that is COVID-19 result in something different than nation states? One structural possibility is hyper-regionalism, defined by what technological, commercial, and protective flow of human, animals, and plants arises. This could be embodied by megacities becoming dominant geopolitical actors, dramatically redesigned in the future to provide essential services in a more resilient fashion to future pandemics and other natural disasters, defined less by national identity and more by what they provide those, by what they provide those individuals who live within the municipal areas. Megacities of the future, empowered by technology to provide for those within the immediate vicinity and capable of responding at faster speeds than nations, would forge their own trade agreements, public health arrangements, and climate change accords with other cities globally via direct diplomatic relations or a devolution away from the large nation states into smaller regional powers defined by identity as seen historically to a degree in the Balkans during the 1990s. Another possibility is transnational groups organized either by ideology or corporate identity replacing the conception of Westphalian nation states defined by geography. In a post-COVID world, as we move towards recovery, there will be a need for individuals who travel to validate that they are not infectious nor pose a risk to others, something I'm dealing with right now. Technological solutions may arise tied to a person's passport, hmm, 
or services may arise tied to a person's place of employment, commercial laboratory testing service, or some other global mechanism similar to how anyone can become an e-resident of Estonia without residing in or being a citizen of Estonia. The challenges of ensuring individuals are, quote, safe to travel and goods are, quote, safe to cross borders may strain Westphalian nation-state models past its breaking point and replace it with something that is more network-centric in nature. It's always interesting for me to read stuff like this because it highlights the degree to which people who are very connected are having similar thoughts to what I'm talking about and what a lot of people in the space are talking about, which is what comes next. It's been impressed to me in recent interviews that we are moving out of an age of individualism. I think we might be, I, I think we might get some definitional things incorrect, but part of that is addressed in my reply to popular liberty, which I wrote in the old form. So we'll just kind of read through this letter and then I'll end with, uh, with something that I was working on this morning. Mr. Popular Liberty, may I call you Andrew? God, by the way, I really hope, I've, I'm pretty sure I've heard it said elsewhere that your first name is Andrew, dude. So if I got that wrong, Ma B. I'd like to give you a fuller understanding of my position after a recent tweet exchange we had on July the 8th. The beginning point was a particularly sterile tweet in regards to critical race theory in schools that the Libertarian Party's official page posted. It read, quote, critical theory, critical race theory is one of those distracting sideshow issues that Republicans and Democrats love. It's designed to make you fight over which side gets to indoctrinate your children. Instead, we should be fighting to get government out of education completely. Before I get into the full exchange and where I believe currently you are making an error in reasoning, I'd like to provide a fuller explanation as to why I'm choosing to write this via Substack as opposed to Twitter. In the first place, I'd like to dedicate the time to a longer form response out of a measure of respect. Given forth that you are putting forth new and interesting ideas, I hope to give them the proper care and concern they deserve. Wherever we may end up at the end of what I hope to be a fruitful exchange, I think the careful consideration and arguments in excess I think that careful consideration and arguments in, in excess of 280 characters would better serve the broader community we endeavor to serve. In the second place, I think the wondrous telecommunications technology we have available at our fingertips has made us slightly lazy in our development of ideas. Twitter gives us the capacity to say a lot with a little, constantly signaling for an in-group in the hopes that they find and follow us while the out-group reacts and generates an opportunity to admonish our intellectual inferiors podcasting and live streaming give us the ability to record thoughts in real time building and expanding with each subsequent iteration as i'm sure you would agree the spoken word is kinetic and good conversation as i'm fond of saying is a lot like jazz what i have noticed in my study of philosophy economics and history however is how important the letter was to developing thought among some of the greatest minds our species has produced even the council of nicaea recognize their importance by including the epistles of St. Paul in the New Testament. From great philosophical minds like Leibniz, Descartes, and Locke, to economists like Smith, Rothbard, and Bloch, the extended letter, whether done privately or publicly, serves a necessary end to the creation of an understanding and the consequential development of an idea or school of thought. Which brings me back to the specifics of our exchange. I made the case in response to the sterile LP tweet that I quote above, that absent abolition of government school, it seems fairly obvious that libertarians should oppose 
in the broader field of critical theory being made canon in public schools, given that the roots of critical theory, broadly speaking, are opposed to the social order libertarians prefer. To the above argument, you replied, profitable aggression equals inevitable hierarchy, or, or sorry, profitable aggression plus inevitable hierarchy equals state monopoly on aggression. Libertarianism is critical theory for aggression. These are your words. Marxist critical theory is the same thing, but for hierarchy. Each is focused on one half of the problem with human nature and incentives. It was my contention to this, that critical theory is separate from libertarianism and we would do well to not muddy the waters. I think it would be better said that both are lenses with which we can view the world. I think this still recognizes your critique that libertarianism in your mind focuses too narrowly on state aggression, but you replied to that saying, no, I really do mean that it's the same type of deconstruction logic. So this is po- these are popular liberties, popular liberties words. I do really mean that it's the same type of deconstruction logic for aggression instead of hierarchy. You can use critical theory for anything, hierarchy, aggression, race, profit, etc. Libertarianism uses the same critical theory logic against aggression instead of hierarchy, race, or profit. I responded that pointing out simply because a set of ideas contains criticism that does not make it critical theory because critical theory, again, to reiterate, is a specific school of thought. However, you replied, history and methodologies like be directed at the whole of society, use unique slash uncommon definitions of common words, describe all of the problems that come from that improving understanding of uh, describing all the problems that come from that. Sorry, improving the understanding of society through social sciences, integration, integration, et cetera. That, you argue, is Austrian economic theory in a nutshell. It's here, just pointing out, that your argument shifts from discussing libertarianism to discussing the Austrian school of economics. Now, given that we are disagreeing in good faith, I don't think that popular, popular liberty is trying to pull one over on me by switching up the argument, right? We were talking about libertarianism. Now he wants to talk about Austrian econ- uh, uh, the Austrian school of economics, Austrian economic theory. But it's worth pointing out that there are differences when we invoke libertarianism and when we invoke the Austrian school. I'm quite fond of categorizing things as schools of thought. In fact, I think we have to in order to understand the world around us. As a skeptic, I recognize that despite what many would like to believe about the world, there is no one way of doing things. Furthermore, unlike rocks and plants, I don't believe that human ideas are so neatly separated from one another, but it is important that we endeavor to find the lines where they exist. So let's get to the crux of your argument, or uh, lest I write too much exposition. Insofar as I can understand it, I believe your argument to be that there is an incredible, quote, an incredible resemblance between Marxist critical theory and Austrian economics. It would be your contention that, quote, they are the same ideas addressed to different topics that doesn't make it necessarily wrong, end quote. You also kindly link to the Wikipedia entry for critical theory. Here's where your argument has merit. Both Karl Marx and Ludwig von Mises were economists, first and foremost. As Thomas Leonard discusses in his book, Illiberal Reformers, at the turn of the 20th century, economics was the new science of the age, the new science of the day, and therefore economists were thought to be closer to reality than the esoteric philosopher. They were the new philosophers for most people. Therefore, they were both endeavoring to answer similar questions in a similar fashion. Though, and so even though, sorry, (laughs) even though they were answering questions in a similar fashion, they reach very different conclusions. 
Given that there are always differences between the philosopher and the followers, it makes sense for the purposes of our discussion to distinguish between Marx and his followers in critical theory and the Austrian Mises with his followers in libertarianism. So let's talk about one of the major differences between Marxist economics and Austrian economics. The, one of those, that major difference is that Marx relies on what Mises calls a polylogistic view of humanity. And I'm sure you recall that Mises writes, quote, Marxian polylogism asserts that the logical structure of the mind is different with the members of various social classes. Racial polylogism differs from Marxian polylogism only insofar as it ascribes to each race a peculiar logical structure of the mind and maintains that all members of a de de definite race, no matter what their class affiliation may be, are endowed with this particular logical structure, a peculiar log logical structure. By contrast, Austrians subscribe to methodological individualism, which, which says we must realize that all actions are performed by individuals. A collective operates always through the intermediary of one or several individuals whose actions are related to the collective as the secondary source. It is the meaning which the acting individual and all those who are touched by their action attributes to an action that determines its character. It is the meaning that marks one action as the action of an individual and another action as the action of the state or of the municipality. The hangman, not the state, executes the criminal. It is the meaning of those concerned that discerns that in the hangman's action, an action of the state. Mises, of course, acquiesces the point that man always exists within a collective. The key insight is that only an individual can act. Given these major epistemological differences in the foundations of these schools of thought, I'm curious why you would insist they are the same. If we compare Marx's and Mises' approach to, the, to answer the questions of economic and social questions, it appears clear that they differ in substantial and meaningful ways. However, we did begin our conversation discussing critical theory and libertarianism, not Marxism and Austrian economics. Given that critical theory arose as a consequence of most directly Marxist ideas and major segments of modern and, and major segments of the modern libertarian movement would consider themselves Austrian, my case is still not made, right? Because these, these ideas are connected to each other, though there is an element to which they are separated. Also, just as a note, because I put it as a footnote here, there is, of course, the conversation of what ideas precede both Marxist and Austrian schools of thought. What's interesting about the Austrian school in particular is how you can trace it farther back than the Marxist school of thought as having its own distinct um, flavor, essence, if you will. What is different and what is similar? Let us then examine whether libertarianism is merely, quote, critical theory for aggression. Much like trying to define critical theory, we will surely run into definitions from different sources with overlaps and differences therein. This is, due to the, this is due to the inherent paradox of identity, whereby different people can ascribe different meanings and different emotional associations with the same word, concept, or idea. As I have written elsewhere, and I've said above, categorization is a useful tool, but unlike rocks and plants, human ideas are not so easily separated from one another. My attempt to systematize this approach, whereby we can engage in this effort, is currently called the pantheonic approach, where I explain. The pantheon was a temple dedicated to all the gods. The roots of the words are pan, meaning many, and theos, meaning gods. The word pantheon is also reused to describe all the Greek and Roman gods of old classified as a group. It can be understood from this that when we are engaging in the pantheonic approach, we are attempting to classify ideas in such a way as to include them all. 
While we may later place value judgments on a particular school of thought, the purpose of the method is to first categorize, classify, and then relate the various schools of thought to one another. In the absence of such a method, which is the exercise of our reason, we are left to understanding the world at a more instinctual level. You'll recall in my piece, The Zenith of Enlightenment, that I've talked about, and I'm, and I'm trying to talk about this more and more, is that we uh, the three basic drives of humanity are instinct, reason, and faith. But if we so if we don't use our reason, we are left to understand the world at a more instinctual level. This is what I dub the ever-present monolith, this instinctual drive that we have within us. The mistake of many schools of thought is that they take a myopic ideology and affix it to a monolithic caricature to create an incorrect understanding of reality. This is a consequence of a basic sorting mechanism we do. As social creatures, we necessarily create a conception of us and a conception of them. Us and them, me and you. What Us, are you with me or are you against me? Are you with us or against us? This is basic. This is the basic binary sorting mechanism that's found at the level of instinct in humanity. And you don't get to move beyond, you don't rise um. You don't rise above this, right? It's not that I don't have this within me just because I'm putting together and putting forth this idea of the pantheonic method and because I am a supporter of individ methodological individualism. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not the case that I have suddenly risen above the natural inclinations of the human mind. No, no, no. But I understand them. And so I work to make sure that I don't fall victim to that overly simplistic viewpoint of the world. I fully grant your point quoted above that both critical theory and libertarianism are attempts to classify or that both critical theory and libertarianism attempt to classify the world in similar ways, but are focused in on different, as you put it, um, but focus in on different matters, as you put it, hierarchy versus aggression. However, as I demonstrated above, the intellectual ammunition differs entirely. To further this thought with an, with an analogy, we might say that an AR-15 rifle can shoot a 226 or a 556 round, but we wouldn't pretend that those bullets would have the same impact when it strikes a target. In this analogy, our mind is the rifle, the target society, and the bullet, the school of thought. Denying our instincts and the evolutionary process that brought us to this point is a mistake. However, allowing ourselves to function solely at the level of instinct with the ever-present monolith I describe above is also a mistake. Our capacity to reason should be embraced not shunned in our endeavors to progress the ideas we both share. So why I say this is that it's very easy to use the ever-present monolith to, to serve your point. And in fact, you're kind of going to naturally do it no matter what, right? Because it's us versus them. It is, the, you know, you're, you're immediately putting things into that binary. One of the things you were endeavoring to show me was, quote, the incredible resemblance between Marxist critical theory and Austrian economics. To this, I say, yes. Of course, there are similarities, and those should be addressed, but it is also important that we focus on the differences, given that the differences in schools of thought are of consequence, not the various ways in which human thought is similar. I look forward to his response and our inevitable expo uh, exploration of his conception of archotropism. And so that's my, that's my letter to, uh, uh, to Andrew. You know, like I said, I think I said at the beginning of the show, I also spoke with... Um, I also spoke with Matt Erickson of the King Pilled podcast this week, and we hit a lot of what we talked about there was also the idea of individualism and, and, and these critiques of individualism, individualism that seem to be on the rise. 
And a lot of it seems to be put in the, in the frame of, you know, that, that is kind of moving into another time and that ultimately there is a, there is a negative element to individualism. And, and of course there are positive and negatives to everything, right? Like that's, that's kind of why I want a more sophisticated viewpoint of the world and why I do think ultimately a methodological individualism is better, better serves that. I, I, I will be giving a little bit more time and conception to him, but I did, I bought myself a whiteboard, which I'm very excited about because I've wanted a whiteboard for a long time. Um, and, you know, and they're like, they're not super expensive, but like to get a nice one, it's like, you know, a little under $200. And I was like, I, I can do that. I can get it. You know, I can use it for work. I can use it for this. It's so I, I finally bought myself one in this morning. I was actually, um, I was actually playing with it and I was kind of just trying to schematize some of these ideas and, you know, Matt, if you're listening to this, and if not, don't worry, I'll write about this soon enough. But I, I've, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm interested in pushing this idea, right? Because a lot of people, a lot of people, I think, get hung up in the conception of individualism as being separate from collectivism. And there's a reason for this, right? Like if we're talking about the post-World War II where you're fighting against the communists, it's very easy to put things in terms of individualism and collectivism as being entirely separate from one another. But of course, if we look to the careful thinker, and who can think of a more careful thinker than, than Ludwig von Mises? Hmm? I, I, I dare you to show me one. I'm sure they exist, but, I, but again, for somebody, I don't think anybody would accuse somebody like Mises of, not be, of being an uncareful thinker, of not thinking things through. And this is very important. This is very important if we are going to do what a lot of people have claimed, which is bring these ideas forward, these ideas of freedom, is of, of advancing them, right? We're talking a lot about application and practice in the space right now. And if you're wondering what that application and practice is, right? It's go make more money. Stop being poor. Figure out how you can build a better life for yourself and the people that you care about. And if you're, and I, I'm happy to help, you know, I have friends of mine who I help with this, not, and not in any other way than just being a listening ear and like going through ideas with them. Kind of like what we do on the show, giving people a proper perspective of things. There's, of course, other people in this space that are already doing it much better than I could and have, who have reached greater levels of success. And so you should follow them because that's who I'm following are the people who have already found success in this space, in this worldview. But so that, that's the practice. That's the easiest form of the practice. And it's just a question of how do you implement that in your life? But staying in the realm of ideas, it was interesting to me in our conversation how the point is, is well taken, which is it's not quite that we are all individuals, which I think is true, right? And I can understand how a more dogmatic mind would take the idea of individualism and say, well, then therefore atomism. And I have argued consistently in that I've ever come in that I've, I've been arguing consistently for 10 years that individualism is not atomism. Individualism and collectivism are not so separate from each other because of course we as human beings evolve within a tribe within a society within a group within a collective if you will this is how this is how it works this is how we are people without and and here's a very simple reason for it without uh, without evolving in a group we have no need for language if human beings didn't evolve in, within a collective within a tribe within a group we would have no need for language and language, of course, is how we are able to have such complex ideas. And the fact that we can write ideas and now we can record ideas in real time in a podcast 
is how we have the level of intelligence and the, and the great level of richness that we have in our current day. Not to say it couldn't be better, but it is to say, it is to say that it could be a lot worse. So again, there are these, so just, in, so just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, this has been a fun show. Thanks for hanging out with anybody who's still in the live chat. I appreciate it. This will, of course, be thrown up on beenawake.com soon enough here. So if you had to dip out or if you're just dipping in now, it's going to be there. I don't so far, and you know, we'll see. I still have to write these things out because that's the best way that we can really understand it is when we write these things out for, you know, to kind of like sit back and, and, and actually reflect upon it. But so far, I haven't heard anything that really chips away at the conception of individualism. If anything, if anything, we are at a point where we're at a point where we're, again, we're, we're re-questioning things. And, that's, and it's a very exciting time to be a part of a movement like that, that is re-questioning the basic fundamental presuppositions of the world. And that's why I'm really happy to be where I am, right? It's, but I don't, but again, I don't think we need to abandon individualism. We don't need to abandon the great thinkers of the past. All we need to do is make sure that their ideas are applied in the best way possible. So let's go do that. like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.